Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. We're going to be talking about a very important topic. Um, you know, we've talked about PFAS before on Go Green Radio, but we've never talked about PFAS sludge. And this is something that can impact each and every one of us, and you'll find out why. Our guest today is Dr. David Andrews, and he is a senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group. You can check out their website at ewg.org. Dr. Andrews, thank you so much for joining us today on Go Green Radio. We're really glad to have you on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, I'd like to begin, uh, just in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with PFAS, I'd like to have you begin by giving us a brief overview of what PFAS is and the human health risks that are associated with PFAS. Sure. So, so PFAS is it's actually just an acronym for a, a complex uh, chemical name of a, a really a family of chemicals. So it's per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, really a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Um, but what these chemicals are, are a family of man-made chemicals um, that have been widely used in industrial and consumer products since the 50s. Um, the two most well-known are, at this point, notorious chemicals are the ones that were used to manufacture Teflon. Um, so that's one of these PFAS chemicals, and also one of the main ingredients in Scotchgard. Um, but what has gotten so complicated about these chemicals and, and why this has become such an enormous problem is these chemicals have a unique feature um, in terms of they have a, a carbon-fluorine bond, and, it, and it's a type of chemical bond that's incredibly resistant to breakdown. Um, and, and it's once it released into the environment, they don't really break apart. And so these are actually commonly referred to now as forever chemicals, because once released, they are pretty much in our environment forever. Um, and, and, and what is somewhat incredible is that in the 1950s, there was one or two of these uh, PFAS compounds being made and used industrially. Um, but over time, health concerns were raised, in particular about one of the chemicals that was um, used to manufacture Teflon uh, in and around um, the production facility in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and the contamination of that surrounding area. So if anyone's seen Dark Waters, um, it was the, the contamination there was the focus of that movie. And it was through the study of nearly 70,000 residents there that we learned that these compounds may have enormous impacts on health. And so exposure in that community was associated with a range of different health effects, including increased risk of cancer, um, high cholesterol, pregnancy-induced hypertension, and ulcerative colitis. Um, What we have subsequently learned in in the last 15 years is that these chemicals can actually impact a much wider range of, of health effects. And some of the most concerning health effects are that very, very low concentrations may impact our immune system and actually reduce the effectiveness of vaccines. Um, So these are compounds that are widespread in the environment. Um, We actually know that they're in the blood of most people, most Americans, and this is through monitoring that's been going on um, by, by the government for the past decade. Um, and, and we've learned that at very low concentrations, they're likely impacting our health 
um, impacting the, the effectiveness of our immune system, impacting uh, reproductive system, and likely increasing the risk of cancer. And so it's it's really become quite an an enormous problem to understand where these chemicals are, how people are being exposed to, and ultimately, based on what we've learned over the last decade, is we want to reduce exposure as much as possible. These are chemicals where there there really is no safe level of exposure. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a shift to, to trying to understand where, where the chemical exposure is coming from and trying to eliminate it. And, and so that really kind of leads into this discussion of, of PFAS and sludge. Absolutely. Because we've talked about, you know, on Go Green Radio, we've talked about PFAS uh, in a number of different applications, but we've never talked about PFAS sludge. Um, and I really want you to talk to us about what it is um, and where, where it comes from. Right. So sludge or uh, biosolids is really the product of wastewater treatment plants. So this is everything that is collected from storm drains, um, the plumbing in your house, but also importantly, um, what comes out of industrial sources. So manufacturing facilities, um, chemical plants, most of their wastewater um, goes into a, a wastewater treatment plant, especially in cities. And, and what the sludge is, or the biosolids, is they separate out the liquid and the solid waste. And the solid waste is then decomposed through bacteria to make sure there's no living organisms. Um, but then oftentimes that sludge is dried. Um, it can be applied it can, in, in some places. That, that sludge will go to a landfill. Um, other places actually incinerate the sludge, uh, sometimes to generate electricity, um, although not the best um, combusting material, so, so that, that return is relatively small. Um, but in many places, that sludge is applied to cropland as a fertilizer. Um, there is a, a, a good carbon source in there, and so that is why it's been used as a fertilizer. But one of the underlying concerns here, and what we've learned in, in many situations, is, is that if that wastewater from either, oftentimes from an industrial source, is contaminated, with these PFAS or forever chemicals, those forever chemicals end up in the sludge. And then if that sludge is applied to agricultural fields, that sludge can then contaminate those fields and actually may also contaminate the crops that grow on those fields. You know, Dr. Andrews, I've, I've heard some folks in the water industry say that even if we are, like for instance, if we're washing fabrics, um, you know, that have PFAS in them, you know, some of our waterproof jackets or, you know, things that have had Scotchgard a- applied to them, that it's possible that even the wastewater that comes from our washing machines when it hits the wastewater treatment plant may have PFAS contamination. Is that something that you all have seen? We have, and I think this is something that's, that's really trying to be understood now in terms of both the scientific community as well as states and those um, state health departments, as well as operators of wastewater treatment plants, are is, is identifying where this PFAS contamination is coming from. And so to date, only a few states and a few locations have really done in-depth research of where the PFAS sources are within a wastewater mm-hmm. treatment plant. Um, but, but I was actually at a conference just over two weeks ago um, in New England looking at, um, in in particular, this is the Wastewater Association Conference, 
looking at sources of, of, of PFAS into wastewater treatment plants in, in Vermont. And they actually found that for a number of their wastewater treatment plants, it did look like the residential sources um, may have been some of the major sources and con contributing to the the PFAS in, in the wastewater treatment plants and in the, in the sludge ultimately. Um, so there is some indication that our consumer products, um, either our, our coated textiles or uh, washing carpets, can have a big contribution to, to the overall waste stream of these, these, these chemicals. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that recently there was a report that came out and EWG used state data. And based on that state data, you estimated that 5% of all crop fields could be using sewage sludge or biosolids as a fertilizer, even though it's contaminated with PFAS. And I'd love for you to talk to us about the data you used and how you reached the conclusion that up to 5% of all crop fields could be using PFAS contaminated fertilizer agents. Right, and, and I will say there's a lot of uncertainty here. Um, just start off there in terms of there's not comprehensive data across the country about where sludge is being used and applied to fields. Um, EPA does collect information from, from some of the larger wastewater treatment plants, makes that information available um, in a national database. Um, this, is, this is actually called the, the ECHO database that um, it both tracks um, wh where sewage sludge is, is collected um, and it also provides information on industrial dischargers of contamination. So, so we have a, a lot of familiarity with this data set, and we've actually used it to map potential sources of contamination across the country. Um, but for this analysis, we, we were looking at, in particular, um, sludge volumes that, that had been at least reported to be applied to fields. And, and we found that since 2016, there's over 19 billion pounds that had been reported as that the ultimate destination was farm fields. Um, some of the bigger states were California, Florida, and Illinois. Um, and from that, and, and, and from the states that had comprehensive data in there, we, we tried to do a national estimate. Um, and that's where we came up with this 5% of crop fields could be using this, this, this biosolids or, or sewage sludge as a fertilizer. Um, but we'd really like to see more information. We'd like to see a more comprehensive national analysis done um, to really decipher where this sludge is being used and, and which farm fields in particular it's being applied to, and then determine it in whether or not it's impacting the soil and ultimately the crops that are grown on those fields. Because that's, that's really the ultimate question is, 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 is high levels of, of this contamination impacting our crops? And, and could this potentially explain why these compounds are so widespread in in, in the population. Well, and, and that is the question. You know, if, if PFAS contaminated sludge is applied to crop fields, I mean, what are the possible upshots? Um, you know, we may not have all the data at this point, but what are some of the suspected upshots of applying this to crop fields? Well, there have been a handful of studies that have shown a number of these PFAS components migrate into, into uh, crops, in particular leafy greens, um, and as well as some of the, the other um, very watery crops like tomatoes. Um, but, but in particular, leafy greens will take up some of these PFAS, PFAS chemicals. 
Um, and, and what actually makes this really complicated is that I mentioned at the beginning that this discussion of PFAS started with Teflon and Scotchgard as two chemicals. But over the past few decades, there have been over a thousand different similar chemicals approved for industrial use in the United States. Oh and word. all of these chemicals share this, this, this forever chemical name because they don't break apart in the environment, but they all behave slightly differently in terms of how well they're up, how well they may be taken up by crops and how much they accumulate in our bodies. So it becomes a very complicated question of what, what types of PFAS may be impacting which sludge and then how much it could be migrating into some of the food crops. Because we actually know that some of the replacement chemicals, so some of the ones um, that replace the most concerning ones, um, are, are, are taken up at higher levels in crops. Really? Oh, wow. Well, and besides the, the sludge issue, I mean, is it possible that PFAS could end up in the water that's used to irrigate crop fields? I mean, gosh, there, there's, you know, a cumulative effect, I wonder, if we're applying PFAS-contaminated sludge and PFAS-contaminated irrigation water. Yes, it's, it's absolutely possible. We've actually done much more research on contamination of the water supplies across the country. And, and we've done um, we've done both analysis of state data. Uh, we have a, a national map of identifying all the places of where, where PFAS contamination of drinking water has been identified. Um, and we've actually also done some of our own testing to, to map the extent of, of PFAS contamination worldwide. And we actually estimate that um, over 200 million Americans likely have um, PFAS in their drinking water. So the, the concentrations do vary, but I think that's a clear indication that not only is it possible, in many cases it's likely that irrigated water does have some PFAS contamination. Um, and, and the question is how much and is that further impacting um, crops grown on those fields? It's the, right. the ultimate question and, and one we want the answer to. Absolutely. You know, Dr. Andrews, I have to ask, and I'm afraid I may already know the answer, but are there any national requirements to test biosolids for the presence of PFAS or any requirements to warn farmers that they could be using contaminated sludge on their crops? There are not. Um, and, and that's part of the problem here. And, and part of what makes it very difficult to understand the, the, the extent of contamination across the country. Um, some states have have um, moved forward to require testing of sludge and have worked to identify where that sludge is applied and if it's impacting um, fields, in particular Maine, has been very active in this area. But there is no national requirement to test sludge. Yikes. You know, you mentioned that some states are getting out in front of this, and, and I'd like for you to tell us about any states that have already detected high levels of PFAS in the sludge. Are there any that have? And if so, are they taking action? Right. I, 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 I just mentioned Maine is a second earlier. In particular, they've, they've taken action to both map where the sludge has been applied across the state. Uh, they've mandated testing of sludge. Um, and they've also come up with standards for acceptable levels. And part of this was in response to a number of cases across the state where sludge application to fields um, impacted drinking water supplies and impacted um, crops and animals 
to, and, and made and made them unsuitable for consumption. And so it's it's in response to that that they have been very active. Um, they actually recently uh, there's legislation in the state that because of the PFAS contamination of sludge, that the state's looking to to ban the application to agricultural fields. And I believe that that's passed both the House and Senate in Maine. Um, and then uh, Michigan has also uh, moved forward on um, sludge testing, and I'm, I'm sure there's a it, it's really a moving target. That and, and I'm sure a few other states are looking at it, but I'm not aware offhand of of, of where they stand on actually requiring testing. You know, it's so frustrating that states have to create a patchwork of public policy um, rather than relying on the federal government to to get out in front of this. I know that the EPA is trying. Um, They've put out a PFAS strategic roadmap. Can you give us an overview of that uh, for any of our listeners who may just be hearing about this for the first time? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And so last fall, um, the EPA announced a really a roadmap of, of EPA commitments for what they what they plan to do moving forward to address this contamination crisis, and this is a range of actions from assessing the toxicity of different compounds to um, setting drinking water standards, um, trying to hold polluters accountable. It, it, it's, it's kind of a, a comprehensive document, I think 30 or 40 page PDF, um, as well as looking at identifying some of these compounds as hazardous waste. Um, so they could be regulated as hazardous waste and that puts in place other requirements in terms of monitoring effluent, um, testing hazardous waste sites and, and really identifying the sources of contamination. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the main complaints about uh, the EPA roadmap is that it's not moving fast enough based on what we know. Um, yeah. So it is it, it, it is a plan it's a, and it's a path forward, which is which is really critical. Um, but but I think a lot of people across the country are incredibly frustrated, especially those in, in communities where that they know there's there's contamination and they'd like to see faster action. Absolutely. That's absolutely, you know, something that we're, we're seeing um, from sea to shining sea. I live in California and, you know, even just the absence of reasonable maximum contamination levels for PFAS in our drinking water, we're still waiting. And so we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Dr. David Andrews. Um, So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. If you just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dr. David Andrews. He's a senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group. You can check out their website at ewg.org. Today, we're talking about PFAS, but we're covering it from an angle that we haven't yet um, on Go Green Radio, and we're talking about PFAS sludge and um, its application on crop fields and, and the impact that that could have. Before the break, we were talking to Dr. Andrews about the EPA's PFAS strategic roadmap, and we were talking about some of the components, but I guess the question for today is, does the roadmap address PFAS sludge, Dr. Andrews? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a great question and it's important for this discussion. And, and I think there's a few aspects of the, the EPA roadmap that actually help. Um, so one is that the, the EPA roadmap does require um, or, or does outline a plan for EPA to publish a testing methodology this fall, um, which, which will enable much more widespread um, testing for PFAS and sludge, and this will be a validated method. It's not to say that there are, there aren't options available for testing currently. There's a number of uh, commercial companies that that offer testing, but this will outline a a, a standard methodology for testing. Um, and the roadmap also outlines a plan to to do a risk assessment. So this is kind of evaluating what's a safe level of two of the PFAS compounds in sludge. Um, but that's not expected until 2024. Um, so overall, I, I, I think we'd be quite critical of the, of the EPA uh, roadmap, in particular because it's really only planning to study the issue of PFAS and sludge, and it's not setting any, any clear deadlines. Um, in particular, we would like to see deadlines for eliminating the, the PFAS discharge the PFAS that's going into the wastewater treatment plant that's causing the PFAS in the sludge in the first place. Because mm-hmm. um, ultimately, that's what we want to see. We want the levels of PFAS in sludge to go down based on what we know about the extreme toxicity of these compounds. And that's where the EPA, the EPA uh, roadmap comes up short. So it takes a few steps, uh, one, the important one really being setting up a, and, and validating a testing methodology but it doesn't go far enough to actually take action that's going to clean up this sludge problem. 
Hmm. That's disappointing. And, and, you know, I mean, anybody who's ever set smart goals knows that, you know, part of, of a, of a good goal in any roadmap is the, the time element, um, and, and that it's time bound. And so this lack of deadlines is, is really troubling. Is there any way for everyday citizens who might share your, um, disappointment in the PFAS roadmap? Is there a way for them to weigh in or be involved? Is there any kind of citizen involvement option in the PFAS roadmap? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and, and, and interesting to consider how to get involved in, in this issue, especially if you're concerned. And I think the important step is really to become more educated. And, and we really try to provide a lot of resources on our website that you mentioned earlier at ewg.org, both in, both in terms of explaining the toxicity of these compounds, explaining why it's of public health interest, um, and, and also explaining um, in detail the, the concerns with PFAS contamination of sludge. In terms of the actions we've seen recently, most of those have been at the local and state level. In mm -hmm. part, that, that's because we've seen kind of a, a, there's a, there's a bureaucracy at the federal level, and, and some of that has been built in by design. We've, I've worked on a lot of issues related to industrial chemicals, and the process for setting strict deadlines, for setting new safety standards, has become convoluted to the point where very little action has taken place. Um, and, and so that action has shifted really to the state levels. Um, so that it, it's both frustrating that it's, that it's shifted to the state levels and there's not a national standard for PFAS and sludge. But at the same time, I think that's more of an opportunity for citizens and concerned citizens to, to have an impact. And, and so this is, um, really raising these issues with local and state legislators, um, even reaching out to wastewater treatment plants and 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 driving that change locally, um, because because that is that is where where things are happening. Um, mm -hmm. So there is a lot of opportunity for for concerned citizens to make a difference. Um, and and I at, at this point I would really focus that on the the local and state level and, and local and state legislators. Mm -hmm. I think that's sage advice, given the the, the climate of our federal um, government at the moment. So thank you for that. Now, I, I want to start to delve into the kind of the life cycle or the waste cycle of PFAS. But let I want to start a little bit before that and talk about how PFAS gets into our drinking water. You know, we mentioned in the last segment that there could be PFAS in the irrigation water for crop fields, but we've heard a lot about PFAS in our drinking water supply. How, how does it get there? Right, so, so PFAS in, in, in drinking water is of particular concern, especially um, we know most people consume a few liters of water a day. And any PFAS in the drinking water, um, many of these compounds actually accumulate in our body. Um, and, and so the ones that have been the most well-studied, so PFOA and PFOS, the levels in our body and in our blood are actually 100 times higher than the levels in the drinking water. Wow. Um, but at the same time, um, there, there, there hasn't really been adequate testing to figure out where the contamination in, in, in water is coming from. 
Um, we did testing a couple of years ago looking at uh, 44 cities um, in states across, I think it's in just about three dozen states across the United across the country, um, and found every single sample except one had PFAS contamination. And these are major metropolitan areas. Um, major cities typically get their water from surface water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the sources of contamination of surface water is, is, is runoff, um, as well as discharge from industrial facilities. Wow. And there and are, are when you're talking ten... about runoff, I hate to interrupt, but are you talking about agricultural runoff? In other words, we've got PFAS sludge and perhaps PFAS contaminated irrigation water. And that agricultural runoff is, is part of the equation? Is that the kind of runoff that you mean? So that, that is actually a part of the, of, of the potential problem. Uh, and we do know I, there's been a, a studies of a few areas, in particular in North Carolina, um, mm. where, this, where the, the biosolids applied to fields and then water, water runoff likely impacted drinking water supplies. Wow. But which is which is quite incredible um, and frightening. Um, there hasn't been any other studies that I'm aware of that have, have really tried to make that link between um, sewage sludge application and impacts of drinking water. But that is just one potential source. Um, and, and we've actually made an interactive map on tens of thousands of other industrial sources that that, that could be impacting our drinking water supplies. And this is everything from electroplaters to petroleum refineries to chemical manufacturers. Um, all of these different sources, um, because there's so many of these chemicals, they're used for so many different consumer and industrial products. They're just really a myriad ways that they can impact our, our drinking water supplies. And, and it's be, in part because they don't break apart in, in, in the environment. These, these chemicals are incredibly stable. So they're released into a river Downstream, a city maybe have their have their water intake, and those chemicals will get um, you know, go into the inlet pipes for a drinking water uh, system. For the vast majority of drinking water systems in the country, the treatments that they do for for drinking water to make it safe for consumption, often chlorination and filtration steps, those have no impact on the PFAS concentration. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if there's PFAS in the stream, it'll end up in the finished drinking water that, that comes out of the tap. Um, now, we've heard about a lot of water agencies beginning to implement treatment facilities. My own hometown is one of them uh, to remove PFAS from drinking water. But my question is, what happens to the PFAS that's collected in these water treatment facilities? Depending on the treatment type, uh, the most common treatment is a, a carbon filtration. So this is a, it's a, what is very similar to a Brita type filter where you've got the, the black carbon filter, but at a much larger scale for a community level water system. Um, and there's a number of different options for what can be done with that collected PFAS. Um, sometimes that, that filter is incinerated, um, so heated to a high temperature, and that the, the PFAS is released out of that. It's a different question of whether or not it's fully um, destroyed in that process. Um, mm-hmm. so, so they try to essentially reuse the filter. Um, in other cases, that filter may end up in a landfill and may further contribute to the to the problem. Well, and that's you know that's the the issue. I mean, if 
if we're trying to remove PFAS <laughs> because it's it's unhealthy, but we collect it in these, you know, devices that remove the PFAS from our drinking water, and what do you do <laughs> with those, you know, what's the safe option? Is there currently a safe disposal method for PFAS? Do we know? That's a difficult question uh, because they're the, the most commonly used method to try to, to eliminate these, eliminate PFAS, um, especially concentrated PFAS that may come out of water filters or in, in really contaminated sites is incineration. But a lot of concerns have been raised that most incinerators do not reach an adequate temperature to fully break apart these, these, these compounds um, just because of this, this strong carbon fluorine bond. So there is actually a lot of ongoing research, um, both at the, the, the government level, as well as in academic labs and some uh, private companies to develop other methodology um, other than incineration that can help break apart these uh, chemicals and, and really fully eliminate them. So I would say it's under development. At, at this point, there's a lot of concern that the common methods of disposal may, may not be really solving our problem, may, may be kind of cyclically cycling these compounds back back into the environment and may lead to further exposure, but there is a lot of ongoing work. So, so hopefully within within the, within years even, there'll be new methods available that are available at a commercial scale to fully eliminate these, these chemicals. I hope so. It feels like, you know, this is just one example of a situation where you know, we, we get ourselves into a, a place where we've got some kind of hazardous or toxic material or byproduct of, of a process without a life cycle solution. I mean, this isn't that different from what do we do with the, the waste from nuclear power plants? I mean, you know, we're still grappling with what's the proper thing to do. And if PFAS is hazardous and dangerous to human health as, as we believe that it is. I mean, we need to be handling these canisters or you know, these devices that are in wastewater treatment plants that are removing PFAS with care. So um, what, what do you think needs to happen at the regulatory level to ensure that we have a safe disposal option for PFAS? Right. And I, I think of this in two parts. The first part is so much easier to deal with it if it's not released in the first place. So the first mm -hmm. step is really making sure that we eliminate as much as possible any future release of these compounds into surface water, into the, the waste stream from industrial facilities, um, because that's, it, it, it just becomes so much more complicated to clean up soil, to clean up crops, to clean up wastewater and biosolids. The best solution is not to make that problem in the first place, um, and, and part of that is also making sure that the, that we're holding responsible the, the companies that um, made this contamination and holding them fiscally responsible for for the costs, which often get passed on to um, the taxpayers, the the people who are buying their drinking water from 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 a local utility. Um, mm -hmm. Then the other part is setting standards for a lot of this is already, a lot of this contamination is out there. There need to be strict federal standards on disposal methods to ensure that 
all of this contamination is actually being destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I know that I've heard, you know, some water agencies talk about sending these, you know, spent, whether it's activated, you know, granulated carbon um, or ion exchange type canister sending this, you know, to the landfill. And I mean, anybody who knows anything about landfills knows that sometimes they leach. And so there's no reason to think that, you know, the, these chemicals couldn't make it into the leachate of a, of a landfill as well. Um, and so that's something that's, that's really on my mind, you know, I mean, should, should we be creating repositories of some kind for the spent uh, carbon filters or whatever technology water agencies are going to be using to remove it from drinking water. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? It, it's, it's, I think it's definitely an open question. And as you mentioned, landfills in particular stand out as, as a significant source of contamination. It turns out that most of that landfill, their, their affluent often goes into wastewater treatment plants also. Um, and, and actually what we learned in the state of Michigan through exhaustive testing there is that when a landfill released their, their effluent, their, their leachate stream into a wastewater treatment plant, Mm -hmm. That wastewater treatment plant likely had PFAS contamination levels that were above um, state of Michigan standards for surface water. Um, grief. Significant problem. Yeah, this is a huge problem. We, we really need to, yeah, we really need to be thinking this through. We're going to take a quick commercial break, Dr. Andrews, and, and when we come back, we're going we're gonna to dive right back in. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We're talking about PFAS, and our guest today is Dr. David Andrews, a senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group, also known as EWG. You can check out their website at ewg.org. You know, Dr. Andrews, we've been talking about all the different ways that that PFAS can make it into our environment. But what started it all, um, as you mentioned in an earlier segment, was the discovery that there was some industrial discharge of PFAS in West Virginia, making its way into fresh waterways. Can you give us the the latest news on where are we at um, and what's the latest um, updates on on industrial discharges of PFAS into rivers? I think the latest news is that it's very well accepted at both state, federal, and in the scientific level that PFAS contamination of riverways is a significant problem. Um, what is less understood is where all that contamination is coming from. A few states have done comprehensive testing, um, and I actually led a project mapping um, the 40 or 50,000 potential industrial dischargers across the United States um, and identifying the different industries that, that may be contributing to PFAS contamination of waterways, drinking water, irrigation water. Um, but what is what we still don't yet have is comprehensive monitoring of surface water systems and the sources of contamination. Um, and so actually the, the EPA does have a proposed rule that would go a long way towards identifying um, where these discharges are coming from. Uh, it would require all companies that are using and releasing PFAS to report that information. It, it actually may come as a surprise that the federal government doesn't know where these chemicals are being used or even necessarily released into the environment. Um, so they're trying to collect that information now, so better late than never. Um, <laughs> but it's still a big problem and still much more needs to be done, in particular, really more testing to, to identify the sources of contamination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's we've had Rob Bellot on. He's, he's the lawyer that brought this to the forefront, the movie Dark Waters. Um, is based on his life. Anne Hathaway plays his wife in the movie. Um, we've had him on Go Green Radio a couple of times. And it's just, it's shocking to hear the story that he uncovered about how laxed, um, you know, the, the, <laughs> the federal government was in even catching on to these chemicals. But moreover, the fact that these chemicals were not technically required to be uh, reported to the federal government because they didn't know about them um, at the time that, that they were created. And, and so the, the, the whole breakdown of accountability between the, the manufacturer release and reporting on these chemicals um, is just beyond the pale. And to know that we still, you know, I mean, what happened, uh, you know, in West Virginia, he was litigating that case, you know, 
couple decades ago and that we're still playing catch up um, to, to inventory what's going on with these chemicals. It's, it's just shocking. Um, you know, the, the study that was published in the peer-reviewed journal um, Chemisphere uh, that, that talks about this PFAS contamination of crop fields concludes with six measures for addressing the PFAS problem. And I'd like to give you a chance to talk us through those six um, measures. And the first one is limiting the use of PFAS to essential applications in order to reduce industrial discharges. Talk to us about how that could be accomplished and, and, and how that would help the problem that we're in right now. Sure. Uh, so actually, and it came up earlier, it's just how many hundreds of potential uses there are for PFAS, how many there currently are. Um, and, and actually, I am working with a number of collaborators across the country on, um, and across the globe, actually, on, on this idea of essential use. And what this is, is really making sure that when there are concerning chemicals, of, of which we know this entire family is a particular concern for health, is, is coming up with a system to quickly eliminate the uses that are non-essential for the functioning of society. Um, and, and, the, and some of the, the, those uses that really stand out would be the coatings on fast food wrappers. I was actually involved in research where we tested fast food wrappers from across the country, and half those wrappers had PFAS coating, but the other half did not. So it's a clear alternative, um, and, and yet this may be a source of exposure directly through the food you consume. Most of that paper was also sold as compostable, so it could be impacting the, the biosolids um, and, and, the, and, and the crops later in life. So a, that's an indication of something that we see as, as completely non-essential. Um, and an important step to really reducing industrial discharges as much as possible if we can eliminate the production and the use of PFAS in those types of uses. What are some essential applications? I mean, you know, society functioned pretty well up until the point where these chemicals were introduced to the world. Um, what would you consider essential applications for PFAS? There are some applications um, like medical devices um, and potentially even in some types of electronics where the PFAS are necessary for the manufacture of, of certain types of electronic chips, um, maybe some, some types of implants um, to, that reduce biofilms. Um, so places where there doesn't seem to be a, an, a, a functional or approximately functional equivalent. Um, as, as two examples, but but part of the difficulty is is many of the uses of PFAS aren't even known to to, to regulators, and and so step one is really fully identifying where these chemicals are being used. Yeah, uh, you can't enforce new regulations if you don't know where to look <laughs> to enforce them. So this is quite the conundrum. Now the second measure that was addressed um, in the paper uh, for addressing the PFAS problem was protecting the health of fence line communities through strong public health policies. Talk us through that, help our listeners understand what that recommendation entails. Right, part of this is, is acknowledging that 
Um, those fence line communities, so these are communities um, near uh, chemical manufacturers or landfills, waste disposal sites, are often disproportionately impacted um, by, by, by exposure to, to industrial chemicals, not just from PFAS compounds. And, and so it's making sure that there's an effort to understand if there is, and really study if there's differential exposure there and, and differential um, health impacts, not just from the PFAS exposure, but from the cumulative exposure to, to industrial chemicals. So, so really kind of taking that step forward to, to, to acknowledge that there has been, there are communities that are likely more impacted by this com contamination and taking uh, adequate steps to address that. Mm -hmm. And and when we talk about strong public health policies, you know, we've been talking about EPA regulations, um, you know, up to this point, the show, how how might other government agencies be involved in this if we were going to attack the PFAS problem from a public health perspective? I think it's more comprehensive health monitoring as well as potentially health intervention in terms of addressing diseases, but also moving to um, to end some of those the, those exposures. And, and yes, Dr. Andrews, I, I think we may have have dropped you, but we'll see if we can get you back on. Um, you know, one of the other. Oh, great. We still have you on the line. Perfect. I think, you know, one of the, the next recommendations was capturing all liquid wastes from landfills and keeping them on site. Talk to us about this. We were talking about this a little bit ago. We talked about landfill leachate. Um, but what would this look like if landfills had to keep their leachate and any liquids on site? What would that look like? Well, I think this is, is, is in some way similar to treating landfills like industrial uh, sources of, of PFAS contamination. And so it's coming up with a system or process to make sure that that leachate does not have PFAS contamination. So it's either keeping that, that, that leachate on site or treating that leachate to, to, to the point where the PFAS is being removed and then it can be destroyed. Um, and, and this as, as I mentioned earlier, um, from studies across the state of, of Michigan, we learned that, that landfill leachate can be a particularly high source of PFAS contamination. And so this is, this is just making sure that efforts are put in to not allow that contamination to come off the landfill and then further impact either biosolids or drinking water supplies that are downstream. Absolutely. Um, another recommendation which makes perfect sense is monitoring PFAS contamination at and near disposal sites. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but I'd love for you to talk about this recommendation, researching PFAS incineration to address current data gaps. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Well, this is, this is, this is really trying to address one of the, one of the big underlying concerns and and, and actually moratoriums that have gone into place in a number of states on PFAS incineration. And the concern is that if the temperature is not high enough, the PFAS may not be fully breaking down. It may actually end up being deposited in the surrounding area. And so more needs to be done to understand what temperature needs to be achieved 
to fully break apart these compounds into really their elemental form, and then making sure that that contamination is not impacting the surrounding community. And so this even ties back to that, the, the idea of fence line communities um, and making sure that they aren't further impacted by this, by this disposal, which is, as, as I mentioned, one of the more common disposal methods, but one where there have been questions raised of, of, about whether it's adequate to, to fully eliminate these compounds. And, and so part of what that made these chemicals so enticing to use in commercial and um, consumer products is what makes them so hard to, to, to break apart. And it is that incredible stability that led to their use, but it has also led to the, the significant problems in terms of both human health as well as disposal. Well, and, and the final recommendation I find incredibly interesting. I'd like for you to explain it in a bit more detail, and that is researching advanced remediation technologies to generate new waste management solutions. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. There's a number of, of different um, processes that can be used to destroy PFAS, and this is um, oxidation, um, actually, there's a, there's a, a companies that are using plasma to try to fully blast apart these molecules in a controlled environment where they can't cause further contamination. And then there's actually dozens of other types of technology in development to really fully break apart these chemicals. I think there's a, a clear understanding that there is both a scientific health-based need as well as the commercial opportunity to be had in, in coming up with a technique to, to really break apart these, these chemicals and, and help clean up this mess that we know is, is nationwide and worldwide at this point. Well, and my only hope is that the folks who made the mess get to pay for cleaning it up because I know in my community where we're looking at creating a water treatment facility um, at this point, um, unless we're able to get some grants from the government, it's going to be water ratepayers who pay for it. So let's let's keep our fingers crossed and keep our our shoulder to the wheel in making sure that you know, just like every kindergartner is taught, if you make a mess, clean it up. Same thing happens in corporate America. We hope, Dr. Andrews. I want to thank you so much for your work. I want to thank the Environmental Working Group for all of their work, and thank you for joining us on Go Green Radio today. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And I thank you to all of our listeners who tune in religiously every week. So until we meet again, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.